0: Would you take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 5? Luke chapter 5. This morning we continue our study. Uh, Thirteen messages we laid out that was going to take us through the first seven chapters of Luke. Uh, Then we'll take a bit of a break and then no doubt come back to it eventually. But this morning our text brings us to Luke 5 verse 1 all the way through chapter 6 verse 11. Verse 11. Now, Luke 5:1. If you do have one of the red Bibles, it's on page 860. 860. And for the public reading of God's word, I, I'm going to read all of it eventually in the sermon. But for the public reading of God's word, I want us just to look at chapter 5, verse 1, through verse 32. So the first 32 verses of chapter 5. And so, if you're able, in order to honor God's word, I'm going to ask you one more time to stand, so that we might honor. The holy, inspired, and errant Word of God. Hear the reading of God's Word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. The report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who were sitting there had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went upon the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to this man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately He rose up before them and picked up what He had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you now empower the preaching of your Word of God to be a demonstration of your Spirit, for we need our faith today not to rest in the wisdom of man, but to rest in the one who raises the dead. So, for our good and for your glory… Would You now empower the preaching of Your Word? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts now be pleasing in Your sight, our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One way that the Scripture helps us to see the identity of Jesus Christ, who He is, is by showing us what He does. The identity of Jesus and His words and His deeds go hand in hand. One reveals the other. And that's what we see in the text we're looking at this morning, Luke 5.1 through 6.11. This section of Luke's gospel is yet one more time when Luke shows us more of the nature of who Jesus is. And he does it largely by focusing on Jesus' deeds, on His words. In each of the texts we're going to look at today, there's a moment where Jesus has to respond, whether there's a question that's asked of Him or someone who's challenging Him. Each time, there's a moment where He responds, and when He responds, we not only see what He does or what He says, but we see more of who He is. Now, Luke links the text we're looking at together today by weaving together two threads. On the one hand, we see the calling of Jesus' disciples, the text begins with the calling of Simon Peter and James and John. We have in the middle of it the, <clears throat> excuse me, the call of Levi, or whom we know as Matthew. And at the end, uh, as soon as our text ends, you'll see there's a summary statement in Luke 12, 6, 12 through 16, in which all of Jesus' apostles and followers are named. And so, what Luke does is he has this thread, then, of Jesus calling His followers to Himself. But he also weaves in another thread. And that other thread is Jesus' confrontation with the world. Now, specifically, what Luke shows us is Jesus' confrontation with a group of people known as the Pharisees and their scribes. And the scribes and Pharisees, one of the… there really were, were three problems with this group. Supposedly, their stated purpose was to bring God's people back to obedience to God's law. The idea was uh, the people of God have wandered far afield from obeying His word, and so they were bringing God's people back to obey His law. But three problems with that. One of them was that the Pharisees and scribes were prone to building fences around the law instead of just enforcing the law itself. So the idea might go something like this. Imagine, for example, if it were wrong to eat catfish, and so instead of going around and telling everybody it's wrong to eat catfish, don't eat catfish, what the Pharisees would do is they would do something like this. Let's say that it's wrong to eat fish, because if you don't eat fish of any kind, then certainly you won't eat catfish as well, and that's what they did. They built fences around the law, but one of the problems with that is then a number of things that they were enforcing where it's not the law itself, but their own man-made traditions and teachings. Another problem with the scribes and Pharisees is that they would then take those laws or extra-biblical laws in many cases, and they would burden down others with them, but they themselves weren't truly, really committed to obeying. Jesus, in fact, will say to them in Luke 11:46, 46, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So they were hypocritical, telling others to do things that they were themselves unwilling to do. And a third problem with the scribes and Pharisees is that he simply did not recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. They did not see Him as God's promised Messiah, the King, who would reign and be the salvation of God's people. And so consequently, when you read through the Gospels, you find the scribes and Pharisees constantly in confrontation with Jesus, constantly butting heads with them. And so then what Luke does is he takes Jesus calling His disciples, Jesus confronting the scribes and Pharisees, and he weaves them together in our text this morning to show us more of who Jesus is by showing us what He does. And so what I want to do is I want to then note for us uh, five aspects of Jesus' identity, five elements of who He is and what He does through our text. And the first one is this. Jesus is the gracious Lord who calls sinners to Himself. Jesus is the gracious Lord who calls sinners to Himself. Our text begins, the first section of our text is Luke 5, 1 through verse 11. And what's happening in this moment is Jesus is, is by uh, the sea, and as he's there, he's teaching, but the crowds are gathering. They're pressing in on him. So it's, it's difficult to find a place from which he can speak and others can hear and see him. And so he sees a boat nearby where there's some fishermen there cleaning their nets. And he goes and gets his boat, and he asks Simon Peter, one of the fishermen there, if he can row his boat out a little bit into the sea. And indeed, Simon agrees to do that. Rowing the boat out a bit, Jesus is able to sit there, and from that spot, sitting on the boat in the sea, others can see and hear him, and he proceeds to teach them. Well, things go fine, but really where they turn interesting is the moment in which Jesus is done. After Jesus is done preaching, he says to Simon Peter, let out your nets into the sea. Now, of course, Peter is a bit exasperated at this for a couple of reasons. One, they've been fishing all night and they've caught nothing. Clearly, this is not the day they're going to have great success. But another reason it's problematic is because when Jesus first spotted these fishermen, Peter, James, and John, they're cleaning their nets They've been already going through the process of cleaning up everything and the measure that they needed to do to preserve the nets. And now Jesus is telling them, put the nets back into the sea, which would only require them one, to, it's futile. They're not going to catch fish, this is what they're thinking. And then we're going to go through the cleanup process again. Nevertheless, Peter responds. We see in verse five Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And Luke tells us that when Simon Peter let down the nets into the water, they began catching so many fish that their nets began tearing. In fact, they signaled the other boats to come by so that they could get the load of fish up onto the boat. And as they began putting the fish onto the boat, there were so many fish that the boats themselves began sinking. Now, at this moment, Peter realizes Jesus of Nazareth is no mere teacher. He's not just somebody that's a good person. He is amazing. He's doing a miraculous work. In fact, he calls Him Lord. And what he says to him in verse 8, we read this, verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, what we can't know for sure is exactly what Peter means when he identifies himself as a sinful man. Is it something as simple as I doubted you about catching the fish and I shouldn't have done that. That may be it. After all, he's just said, oh, We told on night, caught nothing, nevertheless. But I think it's more than that. I think Peter here is actually simply confessing, I am characterized by sin. I, I am someone before, uh, when I stand before the Lord, I know that I'm guilty. And one reason why I think. Peter is here simply confessing not just this one instance of sin, his doubt in Jesus, but what characterizes him, I am a sinful man. I think the reason Peter we see Peter saying that is because, one, he recognized Jesus as Lord. Uh, This is the first time in Luke's gospel that someone specifically applies that title to Jesus. Luke has used the title throughout to refer to God, and now here Peter is confessing Jesus, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Another reason why I think Peter is simply characterizing himself as a sinful person deserving of the judgment of God is because his response looks a lot like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. From the text Larry read earlier, remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord, uh, those around the Lord are saying that He is holy, 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 and Isaiah in that moment before the holy God realizes his own sinfulness and guilt. And his response is, Woe is me. I'm deserving of God's judgment, for I'm an unclean man. I think it's exactly what Peter's recognizing. I'm an unclean man. I'm a sinful man, and therefore depart from me, because you're the Lord, and I deserve judgment. And so now we come to the moment, then, in this first story where Jesus has to respond. What is Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? Is he going to say to Peter, You're right. You are incredibly sinful. You don't know the half of it. You know, I'm out of here. No. Look at Jesus' response in verses 10 and 11. Uh, Excuse me, in in the, the end of verse 10 and verse 11. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and Jesus' response is not only not to obey Simon Peter and depart from him, but to tell him, I'm going to use you. He calls Peter to himself, you come follow me, and I'm going to do something with you that is more amazing than you've done in your life. You've been catching fish, but from now on, I'm going to use you to call sinners to me. Peter has been called to be an ambassador of Christ, and that's what he'll end up being as Jesus' apostle. So, first we see in the story, then by Jesus' response, that Jesus is the gracious Lord who calls sinners to Himself. Now, it's very tempting at this point to stop and try to apply this, but I think the way that Luke organizes these stories is he wants us to have this truth compiled, one upon the other, upon the other, until we feel the weight of what we see with Jesus, So first, Jesus is the gracious Lord who calls sinners to himself. Let's move on. Second, Jesus is the redeemer who shows compassion to outcasts. Jesus is the redeemer who shows compassion to outcasts. In verses 12 through 16, we read another story. While, verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, According to Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, leprosy was a terrible, there were a bunch of skin orders that basically left you in the same place, and they left you in a terrible place. But according to the law, according to Leviticus 13, this man would have been required to wear torn clothes. So his clothes would have been torn. He had to wear his hair long and loose. So he kind of has ratted, long, hanging hair. He would have had to, anytime he came within a person, getting close to somebody, Leviticus 13 says he needed to cover his upper lip with his hand and call out, unclean, unclean. All the while having to live outside of the camp, completely isolated from others. So, this is a man who is completely isolated from humanity, he is absolutely an outcast in the most severe way you could be an outcast. And what happens is, as as Jesus is preaching in one of these cities and teaching and ministering there, this man approaches Jesus and says to him, according to verse 12, uh, he falls on his face and begged Jesus saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He expresses to Jesus, I know that you have the power to do this. The only question is, do you want to? Because if you want to, you can do this. Now, again, here's a moment where we have to ask, what will Jesus' response be? After all, according to the law, this man should have not only stayed away, but if he was dare going to come close to anyone… He should have been covering his upper lip and yelling, unclean, unclean. And we hear he has the audacity to approach Jesus, to come to him, to to fall on his face down in front of Jesus in his very presence. What in the world is Jesus going to do? Is Jesus going to say at this moment, how dare you, you unclean man? Get away from me. Get, Get outside the camp. No. Not only does Jesus not do that, but He speaks to the man, and He doesn't stop there. Luke tells us that Jesus touches him. Look in verse 13, and Jesus stretched out His hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left Him. Now. Jesus goes on to tell the man, go to the priest, walk through the rituals of the law so that they make sure that that you thoroughly are clean, and then tell no one. It seems on this occasion, Jesus wanted to take some time to be alone and pray, and yet the man goes out and tells others, and they come, and so Jesus has to withdraw at times uh, to pray. But, But what I want us to see here is that Jesus completely restores this man's life. An individual that Jesus could have easily simply discarded, simply held at arm's length, even told him, move farther away from me. This outcast, Jesus not only allows to be in His presence, He not only speaks to him, but He touches him. The first human touch this man would have felt in his entire life of having leprosy occurs at that moment, and Jesus heals him. Again, we're beginning to get this picture of, of Jesus that Luke is showing us by stringing these stories together. So, second, we see Jesus is the Redeemer who shows compassion to the outcasts. Number three, Jesus is God the Son who forgives sinners. Jesus is God the Son who forgives sins. I think is how I wrote the point. Jesus is God's Son who forgives sin. God the Son who forgives sin. We see that this third story in verses 17 through 26. And what Jesus does here is, I mean, excuse me, what Luke does here is he includes for us now an element of confrontation. After showing us the the calling of some to follow him, he now shows us a moment of confrontation. In 17 through 26, what's going on is Jesus is preaching inside a house, and as he is there, the crowds begin to gather around. The house itself is so crowded. And those surrounding the house are so crowding uh, in that no one can really get to Jesus. And that's a bummer because some men have a paralyzed friend. And they've decided that they want to bring their friend to Jesus, believing that Jesus can heal him. And so these four men have their paralyzed friend on a mat, and they bring him to Jesus. When they see that they can't get to him, the crowds are so gathered around the house and stuffed into the house, they decide that they'll go up onto the roof and they'll tear back the tiles from the roof and lower their friend down because surely Jesus is standing there with some room around him, and so they're going to lower the man right there in front of Jesus. That's their plan, and their plan works. I can imagine what in the world Jesus and the crowd were doing as they see the tiles of the roof begin to be peeled back. I mean, I've often wondered, we, this area is just full of deer, Uh, When I was driving this morning, I saw two baby deer on the way. I've often wondered if it's just a deer walked up here, my guess is you would quit paying attention to me, right? (laughs) Just for a little bit until the deer went away. Can you imagine then what everybody does when somebody realizes there's men on the roof and they're starting to tear a hole in it? I mean, you have to make a pretty big hole to lower a man who's paralyzed on his mat down there. Nonetheless, the men do it and it works. And they lower their friend, and He comes down onto the ground clearly with an unspoken request from their friends, heal our paralyzed friend. Again, here's a moment where we wonder what will Jesus' response be. Could it be something like, you've clearly interrupted my teaching, both with this mess and by lowering your friend right here, No, but nor is it simply to heal their friend. Surprisingly, we see the response in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, that is of the friends and perhaps the man himself, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Now again, that's not the response that they were looking for. They were looking for Jesus to heal their friend, and instead he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this causes some confrontation because the scribes and Pharisees are also there that day in the crowd, and they are thinking to themselves, what in the world did Jesus just say? No one can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus is claiming to be God. We see that in verse 21. And the scribes and Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And now, once again, we have to wonder what will be Jesus' response. I mean, think about this. Think how crazy this is. Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. I think think C.S. Lewis um, in Mere Christianity probably has the best quote on this about how audacious this is. Lewis writes, now, unless the speaker is God… This is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives fences against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. This makes sense only if He really was the God whose laws are broken. The Pharisees are thinking exactly right. Jesus can only say that if He's thinking of Himself as God. Now, you might think then that Jesus perceives this and we might anticipate Jesus. He could back off the claim a bit, right? He could say, "Oh, I, I see how you guys think I meant that." No, 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 no. I didn't mean it like that. I mean, after all, there are many times I come to the table on Sunday morning, and we eat and we drink, and I'm looking out at you, and I say something like, "Your sins are forgiven." And and almost always, if not always, I'll, I'll throw in a bit of a qualifier there, and I'll say. I'm not saying this on my own authority, but on the authority of the Word of God. In other words, I don't have the power to forgive your sins, but I'm simply announcing to you what the Word of God makes clear. If you confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If our faith is in the crucified and risen Lord, we are forgiven. So, is this Jesus' moment then to back off or to clarify or to say, I'm not speaking as if I'm God? Well, no. In fact, what he does is Jesus doubles down. He says in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Now, of course, both of them are just as easy to say. You can say your sins are forgiven and you can say rise and walk and they're both quite easy to say. The problem with telling a man, though, to rise and walk is it's pretty easy for everybody to see if your words don't have any power. When you say, rise and walk, and the man lies there, everybody goes, that's powerless. But Jesus does just that. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In verse 25, and immediately he rose up before him and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So, Jesus says, not only am I not backing off the claim that I can forgive sins, I'm going to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins by healing this man. I'm going to show you that my words have power, because if I can say, rise and walk, and the man rises and walks, then you also know that when I say your sins are forgiven, his sins are forgiven. And I'm announcing that authoritatively. Now, once more then, Jesus shows us by what He says and by what He does, He shows us He's God, the Son, who forgives sins. Let's look at one more of these, and then we'll pause for a moment of application. Number four, Jesus is the Savior who seeks after sinners. Jesus is the Savior who seeks after sinners. In verses 27 through 32, we have a section where Jesus calls one of His disciples Levi, whom we uh, more uh, com- commonly know Him as Matthew. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew refers to himself, Levi, as Matthew. But here He is referred to as Levi. Now, the choice of Matthew… I mean, after all, Jesus is, is generally calling people to Himself. In fact, again, as I mentioned, Luke's going to list a number of his twelve apostles in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 6. He's going to mention them. And in one sense, Matthew doesn't stand out right. I mean, if I were to ask you who are the most famous of Jesus' apostles, who are those whom He held most closely, you would probably mention Peter, James, and John. It makes sense that Luke would begin by telling their calling, and their story in particular, and maybe maybe noting at the end, yes, and he called nine more guys as well. But he picks out Levi, picks out Matthew. And I don't think it's because Matthew is especially impressive. I mean, few of us ever sit around in church and go, think about all that Matthew did. Good grief, that guy, huh? Right? No, he's kind of just here, mentioned, gone. So, why does Luke mention the call of Levi here? Well, I think it's because what happens and what Jesus says right after Levi's call. His call itself is quite simple. Verse 27, after this, he went out, saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Just that simple. Where the story gets real interesting is what happens Next, You see, tax collectors were a hated people. We've mentioned this before because they would often collect the tax that Rome said they could collect, and then they would tack on a little more. Everybody knew they were being cheated, so nobody liked them. They were thieves, basically. Well, when Matthew begins to follow Jesus, he decides he's going to throw a party, and he's going to throw a party, no doubt, to introduce many other people to Jesus. And so, the people that he invites are fellow tax collectors, sinners, they have this big party, and Jesus is there, and all these tax collectors, all these sinners are there, and Matthew is introducing all of them to Jesus. And here's where the scribes and Pharisees get involved. They are really bothered by the fact that Jesus is gathering in this party with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, we read in verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at His disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners." Now again, here's an opportunity where we have to see what will Jesus respond? What is His response going to be? Is He going to say, oh, good grief, I'm glad you pointed that out. I didn't realize they were so detestable. I'm out of here. No. Rather, His response in verse 31, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician." but those who are sick, I have come to call the righteous, not call, I've not come, let me say this exactly right, I almost said exactly wrong, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus is saying, individuals who think themselves righteous, those individuals I've not come to call to myself. I've come to call to myself those who know they are sinners. Sinners. Because just as a physician doesn't come to heal those who are well, but those who are sick, so I have come to save sinners. He is the Savior who seeks after sinners. Now, let's put these four points then together. Because Luke includes all of these stories together, it seems to me, with a common theme. Jesus is the gracious Lord who calls sinners to Himself. He is the Redeemer who shows compassion to the outcasts. He's God, the Son, who forgives sins, and finally, He's the Savior who seeks after sinners. Every one of these realities that Luke is showing us have to do with who Jesus is, the gracious Lord, Redeemer, God, the Son, and Savior. But when He focuses us on who He is by showing us what He does, it shows us Jesus moving toward and forgiving those who should be detestable, calling sinners to Himself, compassion to outcasts, forgiving sins, and now seeking after sinners." And my question is this. I'll first make a statement. Luke puts all these together in this common theme because he wants us to see that's who Jesus is. Now the question I want to ask us, does this line up with our understanding of who Jesus is? Because if not… It may be that what we've done is we've crafted our own image of who Jesus is. And we live in light of that, that understanding of Jesus, instead of this, the Bible's testimony to us of who Jesus really is. It may be, in fact, that not only do you and I not have this understanding of Jesus, we don't see him in the way that fits these four stories, but it may be that we've taken our cues of understanding who Jesus is from the accuser himself, from the devil. For example, if this is who Jesus is, the gracious Lord who calls sinners to himself, wouldn't it make sense that the accuser would constantly be undermining that by convincing us that Jesus is one who wants to distance himself from sinners? Or if Jesus is one who shows compassion even to one who is the outcast. Doesn't it make sense that the accuser would want to convince us that Jesus is constantly perturbed with those who do not deserve to be in His presence? Or if Luke shows us that Jesus is one who forgives sins, isn't the accuser likely to to convince us that Jesus is one who, when we are sinning, wants nothing to do with us. When we have sinned, when we recognized our sin, He wants to make sure that we understand that forgiveness, if not impossible, is extremely difficult. To convince us that there are many hoops to jump through. Maybe we need to beat ourselves up a little more, or, or a number of days showing that we have no struggles in this area, and then, maybe then, sin, forgiveness of sins, which feels so far out of reach, is maybe attainable. Or if Jesus is the Savior who seeks after sinners, don't you think the accuser would want to convince us that at best Jesus waits for us to run to Him instead of what Luke shows us, He's the one who seeks after sinners? You see, it may be that you and I have that understanding of Jesus that the accuser has painted for us, and consequently, though we are believers, though our faith is in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, we live much of our Christian life with joylessness. And the reason we're missing out on the joy of what it means to be a follower of Christ is we've taken the truth about God and we've exchanged it for a lie. And on this occasion, we've taken the truth about who Jesus is, the gracious Redeemer who forgives and seeks after sinners. And we place that with an understanding that lines up no less than with the accuser himself. And so this morning, I want to plead with you. If you've come into this room and your sin is ever before you, and the accuser is whispering to you, he wants nothing to do with you. Jesus wants to hold you at arm's length. You will never walk with Him the way you once did. You need to recognize the lies of the enemy and bow your knee to the testimony that God has given us here in His Word about who His Son is. And realize that Jesus is more gracious and merciful perhaps than feels natural to us. But I want to end with one more observation about who Jesus is, because it could be that instead of having a heart that's drawn to Him, wanting to confess our sins, wanting to to know the forgiveness of the One who lived and died and was raised for us, it may be this morning that your heart wants nothing to do with Him. You're turned against Him. You have made yourself His enemy. And if that's the case… Let me know one more reality from our text about who Jesus is. Jesus is the bridegroom who exposes men's hearts. Jesus is the bridegroom who exposes men's hearts. From 533 all the way through 611, Luke gives us three final stories of confrontation. Each time, confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. The first one has to do with fasting. In 533 through 39, we read this. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, eat and drink. Again, here at this point, Jesus could respond by saying, good grief, I haven't recognized that. They are getting a little out of hand, aren't they? They need to start fasting more often. He doesn't say that. Instead, we read his response in verse 34. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new for He says the old is good. Jesus' first claim there is to use this imagery that no one fasts, no one has a time of mourning when they're at a wedding celebration. No one has a wedding and says, and now we're going to mourn and fast in honor of the wedded couple, right? Jesus says in the same way, there's no need to fast, which would show an act of mourning. There's no need to do that when the bridegroom is with them. What Jesus is saying is, I am the bridegroom, and I have come, and this is a time not of fasting, but of rejoicing. Now, the reason that's such a big statement is because if you read your Old Testament and you ask yourself, who does the Old Testament recognize as the bridegroom? Who is the bridegroom? You ask any uh, unbelieving Jew, when you read the Hebrew Bible, who is the bridegroom? And he will say, without exception, it is God Himself. Because God pictures Israel as His bride, and He as her husband. He is the bridegroom who promises to come to His bride, to come to His people. What Jesus is saying is, I have come, and that's who I am. He tells them, listen, there's a day that will come when my disciples will fast. Ultimately, Jesus is going to be killed. He's going to be taken away from them, and during that time, they will fast. But Jesus wants them to know something miraculous has happened. Now that He has come, everything has changed. He uses two images. He says, first, you don't take a, a patch from something that's new and putting it in an old garment. Not only will it not match the garment, but it'll pull away from it. Nor do you take new wine that, that, that's, that's uh, been unfermented, put it in old wineskins, because when the wine begins to ferment, the old wineskins, will to be stretched, they'll burst, and you'll lose the wine. Jesus is saying, I have come, something new has happened, and the old ways no longer are appropriate. Something, something new has happened. Nonetheless, he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you are so caught up in your traditions that you prefer the wine that has come before to the wine that is present now. You're not going to accept who I am. He's exposing their hearts. The bridegroom has come, but you're not believing. He does the same thing in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We read this. On a Sabbath, while He was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, "'Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath?' And Jesus answered them, "'Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him how they entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presents, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with them. And He said to them, "'The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath.'" Again, they're going through the grain fields, disciples grabbing some grain heads, rubbing them together in their hands, and eating. The Pharisees had taught anyone, because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, they labeled that work, rubbing those grain heads together and eating them. So, they asked Jesus, why are your disciples basically violating the law? Now, Jesus could probably have said to them, they're not violating the Sabbath. You're allowed to grab grain heads and eat. In fact, the law prescribed when you're passing through somebody's field, you can do that very thing. It's, it's not work. That doesn't look like harvesting, does it? But Jesus doesn't even mess with that point. He first shows them the way that you teach things can't even account for the Bible itself. Because he mentions to them on a day when Luke came into, uh, the, uh, excuse me, on a day when David came into the tabernacle, and, and and the own the bread there, the only thing available to him would have been that which was only allowed for the priest to eat. But he and his men were hungry, and so they took and they ate. Now all of them would have known that story, but Jesus points it out to say even what you're teaching doesn't account for this point. If David could do that on the on the Sabbath day, and uh, then, then why in the world? do you think what my disciples are doing is wrong? So already is just showing them the way you're understanding things can't account for the law. Now perhaps they would have answered, well, uh, we don't know exactly why David was able to do that, but, but David is David. I mean, he's king. He's a really impressive individual. And Jesus' point is, on the theme of impressive individuals, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the lawgiver. I'm the one who has prescribed these laws. He is the Lord. He is the bridegroom. And once again, He's exposing their hearts. Not only are they unbelieving, but they don't understand the Scriptures, and they don't recognize Him. And then finally, in chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, we read this, on another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their hearts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, "'Come and stand here.' And he arose and stood there. Jesus said to them, "'I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it?' After looking around at them all, he said to him, "'Stretch out your hand.' And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury." And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is an odd story, isn't it? On the Sabbath, a the man's there with a the withered hand, and the scribes and Pharisees are waiting to see what Jesus would do so that they might accuse him. Jesus heals the man, but not without first asking that question Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? The answer, obviously, is it's good to do good. It's not good to do harm. It's good to save life, not to destroy life. And yet, here is Jesus healing this man, doing him good, saving his life, while the Pharisees, who are upset with him for doing that, are looking to accuse Jesus in order that they might catch him and kill him. What Jesus is saying in this moment is he's not only defending his own actions, he's exposing them. In other words, he's saying, if you really want to judge somebody today for doing wrong, look at your hearts. You want to do evil. You want to do harm. You want to destroy life. And and, and ultimately, you want to destroy the life of the one who is none less than God the Son incarnate. Jesus uses this moment to expose their hearts as evil, and therefore they're filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to him. Luke has shown us throughout this how Jesus graciously responds to sinners, but to those who are self-righteous, to those who do not think that they need Jesus, Jesus exposes them in judgment. And so I want to say this to you. If today your heart is not of one of humility before Jesus, if you're not eager to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, but you're here this morning as one who does not believe in Him, then Jesus wants you to know this, your ultimate problem is a moral problem. You are rebelling against your Creator. You are shaking your fist at God every day that you do not repent. And Paul says in Romans 2, 5, with your unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. On that final day, when all men stand before him to be judged, there will be none who will be able to deceive Jesus. Some will have the audacity to attempt it. Isn't it crazy that in Matthew 25, people are standing before Jesus in judgment? The sheep and the goats being divided, and there are some of the goats who are going, Lord, Lord, we did this, and we did this, and we did this. See, we knew you. And Jesus is not going to be won over by that. He's rather going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. He is the one who exposes men's hearts. And so we have here. In our text, a portrayal of Jesus, He is the judge who exposes men's hearts, and they will know His furious wrath on the day of judgment. But He is also the gracious, redeeming God and Savior who chases after sinners, and to all who turn to Him, He will forgive them. And so, I ask you this morning, where do we stand before Him? If you harden his heart, you will face his judgment, his furious wrath on the day of judgment. But if today you repent of your sins, if today you confess your sins, you will find that he is gracious and merciful and forgiving. So I want to plead with all of us to run to Christ in repentance and faith this morning, whether we have known him for a long time or we do not know him at all. If you're not a believer, i want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ and then talk to me or somebody beside you about this so that we might then make that public if indeed you you want to place your faith in Christ and find forgiveness of sins. If you are a believer, you've professed your faith in Christ, you're a member of a gospel preaching church, I want to invite you to the table this morning. We're going to eat of the bread and drink of the juice, and as we do so, it'll be a way of publicly testifying that our faith is in the one who mercifully calls sinners to himself. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment of silence this morning. During that moment of silence, the band will come forward and get in place. Pastors will come forward and get in place. And then we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table row by row, each row. Row one dismissed, coming around, and then row two following, and so on and so forth. Exiting from the outside, coming around and taking one stack of two cups together, the top one of juice, the bottom one bread, and then returning to your seat to the inside. And once we have all come and gotten and returned to our seats, we will then eat... And then we will drink together, celebrating the one who is our gracious Lord, the one who has called outcasts and sinners like you and me to himself. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.